We are in a series on Mark, but we're going to spend half of our time this morning setting up today's text uh, because it's a short text, and I think that it will absolutely pop if we see the language in it and how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. So I'd start us off thinking with this thought, uh, how often have you ever said to yourself, man, it would be so nice to just have a Saturday with Jesus where I could just hang out with him and ask a few questions, maybe have a miraculous lunch or something like that. I think oftentimes any believer who's interested in knowing Jesus has that thought. I really wish that I could just get some one-on-one, buy him a cup of coffee or something like that, just hang out. I don't know if Jesus drank coffee. He probably did. Anyway, we have that thought because there's this sense that if I could just get it from the Savior's mouth, some of my confusions would dissipate. I could actually finally wrap my head around this thing. That's very interesting. That's an interesting thought. It makes sense at a lot of levels. It does. It betrays a reality inside of us that says we are often confused by what the Savior says. And then you ask another question. You say, man, am I actually hearing him? Am I seeing him for who he is? Do I understand this? You say, well, of course I do. I have heard the gospel. I got the right info. And that great, powerful information changed me. Once I got the golden information, that was what I needed. I needed this information. That's a great thing for the modern mind to obsess on, isn't it? We love information. We love it. You say, well, I had the right information, so now I understand Jesus, and yet... You can't help but to wonder, oftentimes in our own confusions or in the ways that we hear other people talking about the gospel, sometimes you say, boy, do they understand? Does this person actually get it? Are they actually hearing Jesus? Or has the gospel just become a great way to draw a crowd and get money? Or has the gospel just become a great way to sort of soothe, soothe yourself in the pain of the world? We have lots of critiques along those lines. So we have these questions in our life where we say, of all of the mass of people who say, I have received the good gospel info, there's quite a few different ways to live out the gospel, aren't there? And some of them are a little bit weird. Can you come to a place where you actually say, all right, yes, I've got it, I understand the gospel, I get the good news and also be totally wrong? That might be a little shocking, and yet I think it's not only possible, I think it's unfortunately quite common. I think it's quite common. I'll give you an example here of a place where some people who had the luxury of walking and talking with Jesus were not quite getting it. We can remove the gospel out of this particular bit and say it's not that that we're talking about. This is just a simple understanding of what Jesus was saying to them. We've just covered this in my Tuesday morning Bible study. So if you're part of that, this will be a little review. But in John chapter 16, which is the 
uh, we'll call it the upper room discourse. It's where Jesus is having this last conversation with his disciples before going to the cross. You can imagine they're pretty nervous about that idea just in general. It doesn't compute with what they know of a Savior and a Messiah and so forth. So Jesus has to sit down with them and say, guys, this is going to happen for real, and it's going to be pretty brutal. And he has this very long, uh, very in-depth, very intimate conversation with his beloved disciples. And that's where we enter the scene with this text. What I want you to pay attention to is what Jesus is saying to his disciples and what they're hearing him say. They're not the same thing, all right? John 16, I'll start in verse uh, 16. John 16, 16. In a little while, Jesus says to them, you will see me no longer, and then again after a little while, you will see me. Now that's, that's death and resurrection language, okay? Not long from now, he goes right from this upper room on the road to the cross. So in a little while, he's saying, I'm gonna be gone. And then in a little while, you might, parentheses, three days, I'm gonna come back. Well, verse 17, then some of his disciples said to one another, man, what is the meaning of what he's saying? What is he talking about? In a little while you will not see me. Again, after a little while you will see me. And then, because I am going to the Father? So they kept on repeating. What is the meaning of what he's saying? In a little while. We don't understand what he's talking about. Verse 19. Jesus could see that they wanted to ask him about these things, and so he said to them, Men, are you asking each other about this? That I said, in a little while you will not see me, and then after again in a little while you will? Is that what you guys are asking yourself? I tell you the solemn truth, you're going to weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will be sad, but your sadness will turn to joy. He says, I'm telling you guys, you're going to be crying. This is going to hurt like crazy, and the world is going to be stoked. They're going to, yeah, we killed Jesus. It's fantastic, but you're going to feel deep pain, but your sadness will turn to joy. Then he says this interesting line in verse 25. I have told you these things in obscure figures of speech. Okay, you think, I have told you, maybe another way to paraphrase that is, I have told you these things in a way that you don't understand it. But a time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in obscure figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And then in the next few verses, he says, at that time, He's pointing to, once I am raised up again, at that time, what is currently really confusing will become much, much clearer. That's going to happen in the future. So verse 29, his disciples said, wow, look, this is fantastic. Now you are speaking plainly and not in obscure figures of speech. Now we know that you know everything and you don't need to ask anyone anything. Because of this, we believe that you have come from God. You know, parentheses, <laughs> thank you. We totally get it. Verse 31, Jesus looks right at him and he says, do you really believe? He says, do you now believe? That's a little tongue-in-cheek sarcasm, isn't it? It's, 
You don't get it. You might hear, did you not listen to what I just said? This will not compute until I come back to you after dying. They jumped the gun. Like you and I, I think often they got excited. Huh, we get it. We're confident. We understand. And then to end the thought, he says, look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each one to his own home and I will be left alone. I'll just spoiler alert you. The last line of Mark, of all the four Gospels, in the last line of Mark, the disciples are running, they're scared, they totally abandon Jesus, and they shut their mouth about the good news. They're dead quiet. That's how Mark leaves us with the disciples. He wants us to pay attention to where they're at at the end of their engagement with Jesus. Now, we'll get to that later. But there's a little bit of a foreshadowing here where he says you don't understand even though you think you do. So that's an example of disciples who in overconfident exuberance think they totally grasp his message and yet have missed the point completely. And it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes me wonder, how, where am I at? I, I've heard the great information have I been formed into a man who understands and hears and sees God? Or am I somebody who is stoked about that great information? I understand. I've walked through some, some biblical, theological, academic worlds for quite a while now. I've taught classes with college uh, freshmen and some older returning college students and so forth. And by the end of the year, it seems that people, I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, but it seems that people often sort of land in one of two camps. I, I run into people who are sort of in this place where they're like, yeah, read the Bible, good to go. I just got to do this next couple of years or rigmarole so I can get my degree and then I'll be good. I've got this. And then you have other people who after a few, you know, intense sort of biblical theological investigations, they say, oh my goodness gracious, <laughs> everything I thought I knew is upside down now, and I apparently have a lot to learn. You kind of hit both of those places. What brings us to that place where we can either perceive that we have much more to learn, or to that place where we say, think I've got this. And more importantly for today, what brings us to a place where we have eyeballs, but we can't see? We have eardrums, but we cannot hear. This is not unfamiliar language for anybody who's been around Bible texts for a while. And Jesus is going to ask that question to the disciples in our Markin passage today. Do you guys not have functional ears? What's going on? The Bible uses this language to talk about missing the point spiritually. Okay? This is biblical language for you are not paying attention. It's, it's kind of like, oh, I could go into all kinds of uh, examples from parenting my old children. But it's, it's that moment where it's like, seriously, dude? I'm saying to my five-year-old boy, do you seriously still not get it? hitting your sister in the face with any object is bad. Yes, I said no to the hammer, but I also meant 
giant clubs, <laughs> you know? Both are bad. Don't you understand? When people have ears but they cannot hear in the Bible, that's not related to some sort of ancient audio mystery, you know? Gosh, he seems to have an ear, but it doesn't work. No, it's a statement that I think to us, our modern Christian worlds, we might be hearing something like this. You may have been exposed to some great teaching and preaching and even publishing, and maybe it really was great and it was accurate and it was from the Word, and yet you do not know what God is saying to you. You've become spiritually deaf. Oh, how often do I hear conversations about the correctness of thinking one way or the other, and yet say, man, is this man or woman actually hearing God, or have we gotten bound up in the info? Spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. It's a big question, and it's at the heart of our text today. Before we get to Mark, though, I want to go old school for a little bit. We'll go Old Testament and look at a few ways that the Bible talks about this. The Old Testament has plenty to say about the different kinds of consequences that just sort of get heaped up on you for various sins. So it'll talk about sins of the flesh. We might think of things like lying, thieving, being greedy, lustful, covetous. Uh, they're all talked about in a certain way that brings significant and detrimental consequences for sure. But then there are people who are suffering from a different kind of sinfulness. And they're described as deeply sinful and the consequence of their action is deafness and blindness, spiritually speaking. Who are these people? In almost every case, almost without exception. When the Bible talks about people being spiritually deaf and blind, it is talking about people suffering from the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, that opens up another question. What is idolatry? I don't have any you know, Vishnu or Shiva idols, you know, in my living room anymore. <laughs> no, I, I don't. And I don't live in a culture that has a lot of blatant idolatry, if you will. Not like what I've, ex I've experienced significant ancient idolatry when I've traveled to Nepal to visit with missionaries there. We were up in the Himalaya Mountains one time and I saw people bringing old metal objects from their homes and there was a whole uh, group, this man and woman, and they had this old coal thing firing it up. And before my eyes, they were melting down their metalware from their homes and you could pick one of the three main Hindu gods to pour it into and walk home with a new idol. We don't do that often in America and yet we ask, what is this idolatry? I think it's a great question. Basically, let's think about it this way, to worship anything other than God. To worship anything other than God. Luther talked about it like this. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on for ultimate security. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on for overall security. The idol is something that you give yourself to loyally, even at a great sacrifice to yourself. 
you can become chained to it, imprisoned in darkness by it for sure. Idol promises something to you as a human creation, and it promises an enhanced life. Idols are constructs of our own fallen imagination. It's the stuff that we create to further life, to enhance our life. It gets so bad, we actually think it gives us life. And it comes out of that rebellious imagination. It's something that you really like a lot. You start to move into idolatry when you say, ooh, I really like this a lot. You're getting close there if you're not already there. It's something you love. It's something you deeply revere. It's something you trust for your life. It's something you rely on as that ultimate source of life. Isaiah is is preaching. He's prophesying to a group of people who have a major threat, a major social military threat impending. And everything inside them wants to ally up with, with other neighboring nations. And Isaiah, speaking the word of God, is saying to them, the Lord is one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is nothing in this world that is more powerful or awesome or will protect or preserve your life, nothing, even how, however much it looks like that. So he's saying that. In, verse, uh, in chapter 42 of Isaiah, we'll, start, we'll look in verse 17 through 20. Notice what he said. There's two things I want to talk about here. The way that idolatry functions and then why it functions this way. Chapter 42, verse 17. Isaiah says, Those who trust in idols will turn back and be utterly humiliated. Those who say to metal images, You are our gods. Listen, you deaf ones. Take notice, you blind ones. My servant is truly blind. My messenger is truly deaf. My covenant partner, the servant of the Lord, is truly blind. That, all that right there, was language for Israel. My covenant partner, my people, have become totally blind. Do you think Israel was thinking, hey man, we're totally blind and deaf, we don't know nothing. No, they were confident. They had it all figured out in their mind. And here's God saying, you guys are totally missing it. Verse 20, you see many things, but you don't comprehend. Their ears are open, but they do not hear. In the next chapter, Isaiah 43, he says this, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes. Those who are deaf, even though they have ears. Isaiah is trying to wake up God's people to the reality that they think they get it, and they don't. Next, he adds to this idea that because you trust in this material stuff, just, let's just think about that for a second, guys. Let's just go basic logic on it. You take a chunk of wood, that's nice, you have a log, then you split it in half, and half of it you use for a fire to warm yourself. And half of it you use to cook 
so you can have a meal. You roast some meat. You use this material to advance or enhance your life, and then you fall down and worship it? You use half the wood to function in life, and then half of it you actually pray to. (laughs) You actually deeply, deeply think gives you life. So verse 44, 17 in Isaiah, still carrying on the same thought. With the rest of it, so after he's used a chunk of wood halfway up, or however much he or she used, with what's left over, he makes a god, his idol. And he bows down to it, and he worships it, and he prays to it, saying, Rescue me, for you are my God. And they, these kinds of people, they do not comprehend or understand, for their eyes are blind and cannot see. Their minds do not discern. No one thinks to himself, nor do they comprehend or understand and say to themselves, I burned half of it over the fire, and I baked bread over the coals, and I roasted meat, and I ate it. With the rest of it, should I make a disgusting idol? Should I bow down to dry wood? You see, Isaiah is saying, why doesn't anybody just ask the question? You are bowing down to a chunk of Douglas fir. Come on. How is this not computing for you, you know? But it's, again, in the Old Testament, it's always linked up with idolatry. He's just given some pretty good thinking there, isn't he? Makes you wonder a little bit about paper bills with presidents' faces on them. We use that for the advancement and enhancement of our life. How often has it become a love to us, an obsession, something we will sacrifice friends, family, child-rearing, all of our time, whatever, hoping for the life that more of those greenbacks could bring. Here's one more. Psalm 115. We'll jump out of Isaiah just to give you a, a smattering. You find this all over the Old Testament. But here you see how this common biblical thought, he advances it one step further to essentially say, idols, they don't have functional ears. <laughs> That's fair. They also don't have functional eyes. So if you love things that don't see or hear, guess what? Guess what happens to you? Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. Their idols are made of silver and gold. They are man-made. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. Hands, but they cannot touch. Feet, but they cannot walk. He's adding to our dysfunction list, isn't it? It's not just eyes and ears. Your whole doggone body doesn't function if you're believing this way. Verse uh, 8, those who make them will end up like them as everyone who trusts in them. This has to be one of the most profound truths of the Bible that perhaps has been neglected and lost. In our information age, we have in many arenas become so absolutely obsessed with info and its correctness that we forgot our worship and our life together is about formation, actually being formed into something new. 
And what this psalmist is revealing, and it's everywhere in the Bible, is that you are what you love. You become what you worship. You, I put a little blurb on your bulletins today. It's great from a commentator. So, uh, I, I don't have it in front of me. You can read it. It says, like, what we revere, we become unto... Uh, I forget what it says. Somebody give me a bulletin. Do you have a bulletin? We become what we... We resemble what we revere, either for our own ruin or restoration. That's the heart of the Scriptures here. We become what we revere. Those who make them will end up like them, as will everybody who trusts in them. This is formation. What do you set your heart toward? This is oftentimes missed even in worship services on Sunday. We've been taught or maybe have just grown to think of worship as expression. I'm here just to express something. But it's more than that. Through the hymns, the preaching, the teaching, our life together, the sacraments, taking communion together, all of these, if we come to it worshiping God, these all form our hearts away from idolatry, and we praise the only one true God. Well, this sets us up to return to the gospel according to Mark. So we last left our disciples on the seashore, right after that big miracle, and Mark has been uh, the lunchtime miracle they've provided for the 4,000. And Mark has been slowly but surely revealing this fairly disturbing characteristic of the disciples. It's disturbing to me because it's, <laughs> it's just too familiar. They're just not getting Jesus very well. And there's a simple progression that kind of shoots us in today's text, okay? The first, Jesus wanted to feed a huge crowd 5,000 men, Jewish men probably, which means a bigger crowd than that. He wants to feed them. The disciples say, what in the world? How is that even possible? And Jesus miraculously provides bread out of nowhere with divine power. Awesome. Next, Jesus wants to help. They want, he wants them, his disciples, to uh, help him feed another crowd of 4,000 people. Uh, this one, probably smaller, mostly non-Jewish folks, and they're like, what in the world? How is that even possible? How are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus says, seriously, guys, are you asking me that question? And then he does it again. He provides the bread out of thin air. Now, in today's text, the disciples are in the boat, inventorying their supplies, and they see that they have only brought one, bread, one loaf of bread into the boat. What do you suppose their reaction is? You know, we only have one loaf of bread? Oh, oh right. <laughs> Jesus, he always provides for us. We've learned that finally. Unfortunately, that's not what they say. They had just collected seven, we remember, human-sized baskets filled with bread pieces. But they only take one loaf with them. And here we go. Mark chapter 8 and we'll pick it up in verse 14. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to take bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And Jesus ordered them, watch out, beware of the leaven, beware of the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
pause for a second there. He sees them making a terrible mistake. It is along the lines of, seriously, guys, are you not paying attention? And he attributes their confusion right to a certain kind of toxic way of thinking and teaching and learning and growing that he attributes to two major power brokers, Herod and the Pharisees. The idea is their philosophy, their theology, their anthropology, the way they see mankind, all of the stuff that they've sort of woven together is infectious in the community of God's people. You have to pay attention to what you are gleaning from sources that are not God. Most of us just glean unintentionally. I took my children to the Clackamas Town Center Mall not too long ago, and I sat down with them by the little fish pond there in the middle, and I pointed out all of the sparkling, the fact that there were no sad faces on any advertisement, and I tried desperately to teach them this is the temple of our society, and herein lies our idols. Trying to warn them and not build fear into them, but understanding that that shopping mall is pure idolatry in every way, but it's so beautiful to us. It's like leaven in our culture. Well, the Pharisees and Herod had a whole different way of thinking. And he says, their way of thinking will corrupt you. Pick it back up in verse 16. So they began to discuss with one another about having no bread. Oh, man, we don't have any bread. What in the world? I don't know. What are we going to do? When Jesus learned of this, Jesus said to them, why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Have your hearts been hardened? Though you have eyes, don't you see? And though you have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? Uh, We got 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of the pieces did you pick up? Well, we, we got seven. And then he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, we've just learned that Mark really Jesus, is tying that thought into the Old Testament way of thinking and also saying to them rhetorically, you have been bound to an idolatrous way of thinking. What's really interesting is that Mark, I'm, I'm super interested, like these are primarily Jewish guys They don't have little gods in their homes. It's not part of their way of life. What does he mean? And he doesn't tell us. Mark leaves that ambiguous. I think some of that helps us today to say idolatry is much more than little statues. Even to these Jewish guys, he's saying, you are not hearing or seeing me. And that's Bible language from you're worshiping something else. We crave those details. I want to know that they were worshiping a certain god like Baal or they had an Asherah pole in the backyard they should have cut down or something like that. Because if, if, if that is revealed to me, then I can easily say, oh, cool, I don't worship Baal. <laughs> I'm good. But that's not it. I think he leaves it ambiguous to draw us into that thought. 
Rather than you have ears but you do not hear, Jesus might just as well have said something like this. You are listening to me. You're following me. But you don't understand me because you are still chained to the average mainstream way of thinking. The notion that certain human creations are going to give you life or enhance your life. And insofar as you remain chained to that popular way of thinking, you're never going to see or hear me. It won't happen. That can be pretty intense. These guys have been going to the right places to learn. They've been reading the right scrolls, the accurate Old Testament. They're members in the right communities. And Jesus looks at them with a great compassion and he says, you are at least halfway blind. And it might be even worse than that. You literally cannot hear God. You probably think that you can. You remember when that one great teacher once taught you something that totally changed your life. That's great. You even think about the idea of God. Oh, he's totally sovereign. He's totally powerful. I love that. He's a totally loving being. That's awesome. He has my back. I love it. I love that idea of God. I believe in him. I do. And yet you're totally blind. The day we're faced with having to find a new place to live, this happens to every human being in this world. You're faced with, oh my goodness, I have to find a new place to live. I can't afford this one anymore. I have to move to Tennessee and we're going to have to find a new, whatever it is. You're faced with having to find a new place to live. And that day comes after literally thousands of days where God has provided a shelter for you thus far. I know that because you're alive and breathing. Thousands of days that God has provided a shelter for us and we cry out in terror and anxiety. Oh God, where are we going to find shelter? What's going to happen? If that anxiety spikes, if your fear jumps, that's a signal to you. It's just like the disciple, where are we going to find bread? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. That's a signal to what you're chained to. The comforts of home have become idolatrous. The loss of your home actually threatens your existence, your ongoing life. It could hurt you. We feel that way. Yet Jesus is consistently saying, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Proclaim my gospel. The disciples at the end of the mark will be totally afraid, running for their lives, and not proclaiming anything. The day in 2008 when we realized that our portfolio just took a major tumble and our heart sinks and our anxiety level spikes and we all stop generosity at the same time. I did. Let's be honest. Many of us saw the fall in 08 and we went, oh my gosh, I've just lost thousands of dollars. What's gonna happen? That moment for the church in America it would be very helpful if that moment for us was, wow, I am totally chained to money. I didn't even realize how much. I know I am because of the immediate fear that I had when I lost all that cash. And that has continued to happen year to year in different ways for different people. 
this green paper stuff, these digital numbers, this stuff that I can use to warm myself on cold days. I can use this money to put food on my table and with the rest of what I have left over, like the half, half log that Isaiah's talking about, the part that I don't use today, I revere it. I think about it. I'm attached to it. I love it and I want more and I'm willing to sacrifice so much to have it. With the rest of it, he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and he worships it. He prays to it saying, rescue me, for you are my God. These kinds of people do not comprehend or understand, for their eyes are blind and they cannot see, and their minds do not discern. No one thinks to himself or comprehends truly to themselves. I used half of my money to warm myself during the cold days. And yes, I used some of it to bake bread and roast meats. With the rest of it, should I make an idol? Should I bow down to these dry paper bills? I sent out an email this week to several of you asking, hey, if you could throw down top three idols in, in, in our culture today or whatever, what would your top three? It was amazing how, how many through money is, is, is part of the top three. Let's just be honest. It's gotta be the greatest God of our day. It has to be. I'm more and more convinced of that each day. Addiction to money, consumption of money, just constant, endless. It's in everybody's fear. It's just got its grip in us. There were other ones, though. Television was one. That's interesting. At first glance, I think it seems more like a symptom of idolatry than idolatry itself. Uh, lots of TV watching seems like a symptom. And yet, perhaps you could think about your conversations about television compared to your conversations about God. Which one comes more natural to you? Which one is easier to talk about? Which one do you feel the most knowledgeable or even excited about? Which conversation would you prefer to have? One about the upcoming Star Wars movie or one about the grace of Jesus? I was a youth pastor for a long time. All of my kids, inevitably, you get them around a campfire, you want to start talking about Jesus, like, it's quiet, it's difficult, it's weird, it's awkward. When talk about Lord of the Rings, oh, we can just chat for hours on that stuff. What am I looking at? Mostly Christian kids from Christian homes that are very, very happy to talk about TV shows, but nervous and awkward and strange talking about their creator, their God, which one, which is really a God there? Here's one. You might say to yourself, boy, what I love in our world today from people is authenticity, honesty. Why would you love that or even linger, long for that in another person? Because I think none of us are going to argue hard to say, yeah, we have actually a pretty plastic society. In many ways, it feels very artificial. We've, we've become artificial and plasticky to each other. And we're really good at processing lots of information. But how we function and why is still totally complex inside. We just don't, it just doesn't, we just don't get it. Does that not sound like a human being who's been formed into a computer? Plastic, 
confusing, and processing endless amounts of information. We actually become like the things that we worship. I know that's a little bit corny, but still. I thought about that a lot this week. It's like, huh, information, the ability to process it. We so value that, our phones, our tablets, our computers. We're becoming like computers, inhuman information processors. That's fantastic. It's not fantastic, it's fascinating how we become like the things that we love. Some other ones were family. Wow, never even thought about that one. I love my wife, I miss her. She's been gone for like a day and a half already. The house. I don't know where I am. I love my family. I love my children. I do. How often have I set them above God? God is a tool to help the family become awesome. God is the means to the end of a, of a good family. Focus on the family. Focus on the family. Focus on the family. Focus on it. That's your win. You can have joy and satisfaction when your family is finally perfect. Guess what? A lot of people's families are not perfect. I would venture to say, this might be a little bit bold, nobody's is. We long for it. Sometimes we will sacrifice everything. Other ones, status, security. A big one today is political ideology. A certain ideal politically. If this ideal is most known and most enforced, once and for all we will have a better life, an enhanced life. Well-being can come for people. I I mentioned Nepal earlier. I remember going over there to visit missionaries. It was my job to come and pray with missionaries, uh, to serve them, to teach them, and hang out, just to be an encouragement. The second time I was there, we took this trip up into the deep back country in the Himalayan mountains. We're beyond where a dirt bike can access. And as I go, I'm passing through village after village. That was the day I saw them literally. I have a video I can show you of them melting down idols to or melting down pots and pans to make idols. And every town you come into, on the front end, on the back end, and in some high, there's idols everywhere. Buddhist, Hindu, collections of them, little shrines, personal idols on people's homes. I mean, it's just everywhere. You see little children bowing to them, sacrificing to them, piles of people starving to death here, piles of fruit on the bottom of an idol. And I'm looking at them, I'm just like, <laughs> unbelievable. You know, how are you still chained to believing this little metal thing is going to help you. We walked all day long, and when we got to the home where we were going to visit, a friend of the missionary couple, my body was absolutely shredded. This was from a day of hiking with just some camera gear, not a lot of weight. My body is shredded. I'm sweating. My legs and every, all, all of my muscles are so cramped and dead and just broken that I literally had to go to the upper room above the, the oxen and the yaks that they had below. And they lay, I just laid out on a wooden floor and, and I just felt my entire body pulsing. When what was happening, the missionary and another friend I was with were in having dinner with the people that I had walked so far to go green. It was in that moment laying there 
that I realized that in my putting down of this culture for its idolatry, I failed to see the giant rectangular metal idol in my kitchen every single day. And I sacrifice my well-being to it. I give myself over to it. I think about food. I obsess about food. It's something that brings me comfort. It's something that brings me joy. It's something that I give money to. It's something that I want. It's something I really like a lot. And I realized, holy smokes. Yeah, I'm not worshiping Vishnu or Ganesh or whatever, but I have become chained to this way of thinking to the point where all I can think about is my pain and my suffering and my social awkwardness around people for being fat. And I thought about, oh my goodness, the idolatry. And that was a while ago, and look at me still. I'm starting to change that for real. I wanna move in a different direction, but I've realized I haven't just had a bad habit. I have been worshiping this stuff. What do we worship? What do we worship that makes it impossible for us to hear God and see God? I think there's huge hope here back in Isaiah who gave us those kind of warnings. Those judgments that he gave us were harsh. They're blasting idolatry. But then he says in in chapter 32, he says, in the future, then the eyes of those who will see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. Isn't that what Jesus just did? Didn't he heal the tongue of a stammerer? Somebody who had a a locked up mouth couldn't speak? Mark has been tying us in to say, Jesus is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. Isaiah says this will happen in the future. He uses this language. It'll happen when a king will reign in righteousness. The desolation of God's people will end when a spirit is poured out on us from on high. Isaiah 42 says this, I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness as a light unto the nations. Here he's speaking about Jesus who will come. I've called you, my son, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the dungeon, and this who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah doesn't say, man, if you're idolatrous, you're just hosed forever. He says, if you're idolatrous, there is a way out. There is hope for you. You've got to lock tight with Jesus. And Mark has taught us that. Earlier, the disciples' hearts were hardened. This is back in chapter 4. And there, Mark quotes from Isaiah 6, where he talks about the judgment upon idolatrous people. And, and Mark is saying to us, look at these disciples have a hard heart, period. Here, he gives it to us in a question. He says, do you not yet see? Do you not yet hear? Jesus is asking his disciples, are you going to be one of those that Isaiah was talking about or not? That's a beautiful hope for us. Because in the Gospel of Mark, the way Jesus engages with these disciples suggests to us that however locked in it feels like you are, you're not. 
you can actually say, wow, I have become idolatrous and I don't want to be idolatrous anymore. I'm going to cast down those idols and I'm going to turn my face to Jesus alone. The idea, do you not yet see or hear, is the idea that we are slowly but surely waking up. And that's where we'll be next week in the great, one of the most amazing passages in the whole Gospel of Mark, the Mark and Hinge. The whole story changes next week, and then the rest of the Gospel moves at a very different pace. But all of it simmers down onto this question, what are you actually worshiping for real? Let's, let's, let's cut through the nonsense that we like to pad that question with and just say, what do I like the most? What do I see as drudgery? What do I want to give my time and money to? That's a great way to ask what you worship. Mark presents Jesus as that saving king, the one sent by God for our restoration. And that's what we need to remember. We resemble what we revere, either unto our restoration or our ruin. And if we're trying to throw a little bit of Jesus into a life that is otherwise given over to this world, Jesus will always be confusing, relatively boring, and kind of what's the point? If we give ourselves fully over to Jesus, the spiritual profound reality of your life starts to, starts to come into focus. And that's where we'll be next week, as the disciples see a picture of Jesus changing people, and it's taking a while for them to come into focus in God's reality. It's amazing, isn't it? Idolatry keeps us from knowing him. What we revere is what we resemble. Let's pray. Jesus, I think about this statement, uh, that we become what we love. And I think about my own life, and I think about the ways that I, I have to sit with Wesley and Annabelle, my children, and I have to apologize to them for the, for the tone of my voice or the volume of my voice. And in that moment, it's easy for me to see that I'm not yet like you. I don't have the patience that you have or the wisdom that you have. And in that moment, thinking along the lines we've been talking about today, God, I, I think to myself, I must not love you in that deep, totally given over way. I confess that far too often I try to hang on to a few of my most favorite idols. God, we are, we are at a major disadvantage in our world today because all of our idols are invisible. At least we think that way. They don't seem to be made of metal or wood, yet perhaps they are. So my, my request to you as a pastor here, as a fellow brother and sister with all of the men and women and children in this room, God, through your spirit, would, would you pour your spirit out on us? Would you give us the discernment to actually honestly recognize the things that we worship and call them idols and cast them down? You are one. You are ultimate existence. You are our only source of life. Help us to know that. 
so that we can truly revere you and then become like you. We love you and we trust you. Amen.